Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. The world of music and poetry and writing reveals one of our deepest desires. And the divided, uh, isolated experiences of recent days, I think, affirmed it. We were made to do life in authentic, loving, harmonious community. Doesn't that just sound nice? Harmonious community. Real, deep relationships. There's only one problem with that. We rarely experience it fully, the way we were meant to. Why is that, do you think? Why do we so rarely experience real, genuine community, deep relationships, authentic community? That's kind of what we want to talk about today from Acts chapter 4 and 5, looking at some requirements for authentic community. But first, again, we're going to make a pit stop in Genesis, see why we're made for community and why God's so serious about it. Uh, Whenever you go to put a puzzle together, uh, what's the first thing you do? I'm going to open the box. I'm going to dump out all the pieces. What am I going to do then? Sort? You're going to start sorting by color. Maybe what are you going to do first before that even? You're going to take that empty box and you're going to prop it up, maybe against the wall or something, so that you can get the the big picture. You see, when you you get the big picture of the puzzle, the, the particulars, the smaller pieces of it start to make more sense. That's the same thing with life. If you get the big picture of what life is really about and where it's going, and then it's easier to to operate, you understand how to operate in the everyday moments of life. Okay, so Genesis 1 reveals the big picture. And uh, if you were at our reality class this last Wednesday, uh, you're going to have some flashbacks. We're going back to Genesis 1, talking about relationships. But the, because the basis for authentic community is found uh, back in Genesis. Look at, look at chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the most interesting part of this text is the use of the words us and our, right? I mean, who's us here? Who's he talking about? Himself, right? Let us, let our our image, our likeness. Long story short, this is a divine deliberation, a council between the Godhead when he goes to create man. This is something that only happens with the creation of man. It didn't happen with any of the animals. You know, it didn't happen when God 
uh, created on day one or two or three or four or five. This is day six, and we're finally at the pinnacle of creation. God goes to create man, and, and it's an interruption in the narrative. The, the first part of Genesis 1 is really pretty boring, pretty monotonous. Day one, 24 hours, day and night, you know, and it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then here's this, boom. Then God said, let us make man in our image. So nothing else is made in God's image, just man. And uh, this is revealing, I think, the seeds of the doctrine of the Trinity, what we call uh, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is who God is. God is the Father. There's uh, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father's God. Son is God. Holy Spirit is God. But at the same time, the Father is not the Son, the Son's not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's not the Father, etc. Now we have a three-in-one God, not just one God in three parts or in three modes, but one God in three persons. Three persons. And this is difficult to wrap your minds around, and that's okay. Because I think it tells us that man didn't make this stuff up. Right? A three-in-one God. Wrap your minds around that. But you're going to see that this is what really makes sense of reality, makes sense of relationships. What this tells us about God is that God is by nature a relational being, even within himself, just by his very nature. There's a plurality, both a plurality and a oneness to him. One God, three persons, forever has been, even in eternity past, a loving and intimate, harmonious, communal being. Before men or angels were ever created, this tells us what? Love existed. Community existed. It's always existed. And that's the first point in your outline. Authentic, loving, harmonious community has always existed within the triune nature of God. And now let's kind of look at how they interact with each other. Jesus tells us that the Spirit... He's never really self-exalted. He never wants glory. He's always trying to glorify the Son. That's what the Spirit wants to do. The Spirit wants to glorify the Son. The Son wants to glorify the Father. And the Father wants, uh, and the Father wants to glorify the Son. And so they're, they're always trying to glorify one another. And you see this a lot in Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. It's something that's been going on for all of eternity, before the world began. And uh, when you ponder that, uh, you start to see that the Trinity is not something that is stationary. It doesn't ever stand still. I mean, there's no member of the Trinity that sits in the middle and says, okay, now you've got to orbit around me, right? It's not like that. They're all trying to glorify one another, and it's like what some theologians, C.S. Lewis, called in Mere Christianity, he calls it a dance, it's the dance of God. None of the members just stand still. They're all always trying to glorify one another. Okay, We, however, um, tend to be self-centered. So in the Trinity, there's, there's mutual self-giving love all the time. No one's standing still. But we like to be self-centered. See, we want to we be in the middle, and we want others to orbit around us. Right? That's the way we tend to be, but when you start to delight in someone, right, you, you, you college kids, you see that girl at college and, and in your class and you want to, you know, you take up an interest in her, you start to delight in her, right? You start to 
move out of your self-centeredness a little bit, you start to orbit around her a little bit, huh? And she kind of thinks you're attractive, so she starts to orbit around you, and it's a dance. That's what happened in your relationship, right? If you're married, it started out as a dance. You start to orbit each other, and you start to care about one another. You start to seek their interests. Well, that's what's going on in the Trinity. I think the Trinity explains reality. Because think about this. If, if there's no God, if there's no God, our emotions, our desires for relationships, these are just uh, merely biochemical states in the brain that come from blind, impersonal forces. There's no explanation for it. It's just totally random. And then think about this. If there is a God, but he's a one God and one person God, like Allah or something like that, pretty much all the other religions in the world, if there's only one God who's unipersonal and he's not triune, that means there was a time when love never existed in eternity past. There was just one God, one person. Love wasn't even a thing. So there really wasn't love until he created other beings. But if God is triune, three in one, then loving relationships make sense because we were made in his image. Okay, when we say that God is love, like 1 John says, God is love, this means that he is, very, he is by his very essence and nature love. I mean, he's the definition of it. Ultimate reality goes back to a community of persons who know and love one another forever. Isn't that great? Pretty deep theological stuff here this morning, huh? Uh, and I want to remind you of it because once you get the big picture, and once you uh, capture the vision, you start to understand yourself, and you start to understand what the problem is when it comes to why we don't experience authentic community. It's because we think of ourselves as the, the center of the solar system quite often. We want everybody else to, to you know, orbit around us. But, so you see the problem there. The Trinity is never just this self-centered thing. There's a dance there. So when you, when you understand the Trinity, the way you were created to, and how you were created in His image, it helps you stay on track with what really matters in this life, and it helps you not get distracted by the things that don't. You start to see, wow, relationships matter. And relationships, there's a lot of problems in, in, in my relationships, but God wants to restore me to that image. He wants to bring health and restoration to my relationships. You see where I'm going with this? Even more than commands to uh, be diligent to preserve the unity, even more than the command, I think we need to catch the vision of what we were made for. Okay, because the commands to, you know, be in harmony with one another. I think someone read a verse about that this morning during worship. Those commands are based on the vision, ultimate reality. I mean, why would Paul say, lay aside falsehood in Ephesians 4? Lay aside falsehood. Quit speaking falsehood to one another. Why? Well, because it's sin. Is it just because it's sin? Or is it because sin, sin's going to ruin the harmony in your relationships? You can't have harmony and fellowship with someone who's lying to you. You're not in harmony at that point, are you? Sin destroys 
the harmony. Sin destroys the community. Brings sin into any relationship and it ruins it. And it's a harmful, has a harmful effect on it. It ruins what we were made for. See, if a church is, I think if, if, if a church is bickering and fighting over all these sorts of little, little things, right? Like, I always bring up the carpet for some reason. Right? If there's a church split over the color of the carpet, we've lost the vision of what we're really made for. Authentic community requires a vision of ultimate purpose. Just like in marriage, right? You learn to get over some of the little things that where you guys differ and because you have the vision, Ephesians 5, of modeling Christ's relationship to the church. Before the fall into sin, the picture we get of Adam and Eve is incredible. The first man and woman. Uh, Adam's made from the dust. Eve is made from Adam. He comes, she comes from Adam. She's made for Adam. See the plurality and oneness there? More evidence of being made in their image, in God's image. Okay? Um, but anyway, they're, they're joined together. There's no shame in their relationship. There's no guilt. In their relationship, there's no, there's no pretending to be someone that they aren't. There's no insecurity. They're just Adam and Eve orbiting around each other, and they see each other as gifts from God, and Adam's like, wow, she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and I always want to put an exclamation point there. He's just blown away by Eve. She's, she's a gift. And it's just, it's really a, a picture of heaven in my mind when you go back to Genesis chapter 2 it's a picture of heaven it's the way things were meant to be it's a it's a picture of life and when you're they're centered on God at that point it's not about them it's about God and it's a and and they have real life in them at that point but when you see when sin enters the picture in Genesis chapter 3 what do you see um, they realize they're naked, right? Before they were naked, they were unashamed, and now they see that they're naked, and they start trying to cover themselves up with fig leaves. And so you notice their focus goes from God-centered to self-centered. Their focus gets sucked inward like a vacuum. So instead of being God-centered, instead of being other-centered, they become self-centered. And as a result of this is as a result of Satan's deceit. Remember, he planted the thought in their minds that God was holding out on them because God gave them one command. Like you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One command. You have all the freedom in the world, you just can't do this one thing. And, and Satan says, ooh, God's really holding out on you. That, that, big, that big meanie in the sky. You know, if, if, you, if you ate that fruit, you, you could be your own God. Right? You remember when he said that? And suddenly, their minds shifted from being God-centered to being self-centered. Now, obeying God wasn't worth it because God was not a means to their end anymore. Remember, they were created for God's glory. Now, well, I don't see the point in doing that if it's about me and I get to be my own little God. I mean, why should Cain... Cain in the next chapter care about Abel. 
Cain murders Abel. God asks Cain, where's your, where's your brother? He says, I'm not my brother's keeper. Am I my brother's keeper? You see, Cain's not about Abel anymore. Cain's about Cain. And Cain was jealous that Abel looked better than him, and he had to take him out. And let's face it, I think we're all like this. This is what has happened to us. This is why our relationships struggle so much. Uh, this is one of the reasons why we have so much struggle with anger. It's because the world's supposed to revolve around us, and when it doesn't, and I have a blocked goal, I get really angry, and I want to take it out on somebody. Right? Someone's getting in my way, not orbiting around me. As sinners, we need to understand there, there is a God, and I'm not Him. And it's really not about me. What is this life about? What's our life about? Everything is to glorify God. Your life is meant to glorify God. Everything is through Him. Everything is for Him. And it's all to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's what it's about. And that's why God came into this world. Jesus came to restore the self-centered brokenness that we have in our lives. It's pretty miserable, isn't it, to live self-centered lives? He came to restore us from that and to create a new and restored humanity, a new community that's God-centered and doing things the way they were created to operate. That's what the Spirit wants to do in our lives. He wants to bring healing. He wants to bring life to our relationships, our relationship with God, our relationships with those around us. Let's look at how authentic community now is restored by the Spirit in Acts chapter 4 and 5. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 42 through 47, Luke, the author of Acts, Remember, Luke is just writing in a historical record of what happened in the early days of the church when it was birthed, and he gave us a glimpse of an ideal, spirit-filled community. Uh, we actually called that sermon a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, a strange community. Why was the community strange? Because they had this koinonia fellowship. They had all things in common, and, and they had this incredible unity between them, even though they were a diverse bunch from all over the world, from Italy to Persia to, to, to Africa, to Northern Africa, to Libya, Cyprus, Turkey. And they had incredible unity. It was strange. It was almost otherworldly. To me, it was like a glimpse of heaven, the way community was meant to be. A common faith, a common mission. They were a family taking care of one another. Uh, the illustration I gave a few weeks ago was that they weren't a bag of marbles that sit there and clash and scratch each other. They were more like a bag of grapes that kind of melt together. And as they melt together over time, it just gets sweeter and sweeter. And it was a really idealism. That's the ideal. Well, uh, Acts chapter 4, the last verses here, is going to mirror that same idealism for a while. Okay, then it's going to get a little more realistic. 
Uh, let's look at this. Four, chapter 4, verse 32. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Isn't that a great description? One heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them, and with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each to the extent that any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, owned a tract of land. So he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And that's the end of chapter 4. So again, this is another uh, beautiful example of genuine Christian fellowship. They have a one-anothering about them that is incredible. There's a oneness of heart and of soul, and it's brought about how? By uh, agreeing on the color of the carpet? No, it's, it's just their common faith in Christ that brings them together. And we can tell their prayer from last week. Remember they prayed last week uh, to be bold witnesses for Jesus because uh, teaching in the name of Jesus became something illegal, and they prayed for boldness. They didn't just pray for the persecution to end. They prayed for boldness in spite of it. And you see that their prayer is answered, but the emphasis here actually is on the generosity here, the koinonia fellowship. Remember, there were people in Jerusalem here where this is taking place from all over the world for this Jewish festival called Pentecost. And right now the church is still very Jewish. Jews had been dispersed all over the world um, years earlier through the Assyrian exile and Babylonian exile, right? They'd been taken out of Jerusalem to Assyria and to Babylon. And there was Jewish communities around the world that had been dispersed from these dispersions. And anyway, they all come back to Jerusalem. And well, for these Jewish pilgrimage feasts, and some of them who came back were planning on only coming for just a few weeks. They only packed enough provisions for a few weeks. But now... What has happened is that the Holy Spirit has come on Pentecost and God's doing amazing things. There's miracles taking place. The church is birthed. All these people are believing. There's just incredible things happening. God's working and they want to know what it's all about. They want to be taught. They want to be a part of it. And so now they're, they're running out of resources. And so other Christians now, Jewish Christians, most of them, uh, they're who actually live in Jerusalem are having to open up their homes and, and share their homes with some of these, these people from all over. They're, they're pooling their resources to meet needs, to meet these needs of these people who had ran out of provisions. On top of that, there was just a lot of genuinely poor people. I mean, there was no social program like you have today. So, and Jesus attracted a lot of the poor and needy people. Um, some of these... Uh, people here are just incredibly generous. It's almost unheard of. 
And one of them that Luke points out is a man named Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth. He's from the island of Cyprus. He's also of priestly descent. That means he's a, he's a Levite. That's what that means. But uh, anyway, he kind of becomes an example uh, for these people, uh, for, for the rest of the people and, and for us. He's called the, the son of encouragement. And uh, just, just a note on this, by the way, uh, there's uh, some, some folks out there who will uh, kind of read this and they say, well, this is, this is talking about socialism or communism without really thinking about what it says. Uh, this, is not, this is not that. I like to call this communism. They had all things in common. Socialism says what's yours is mine and takes it. Communism or volunteerism says what's mine is yours and freely gives. That's, what's, that's a big, big, big difference here. So remember that. And that's what God's looking for in us. He's looking for genuine spirit-led giving. Genuine spirit-led giving. When you give to any sort of church or ministry... Don't feel like obligated. Don't give with a touch of resentment like, I wish I didn't have to do this. Don't give with compulsion. I just have to. I feel like I have to. God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. Remember that. Do it out of Love. Do it out of his desire to, to, to bless God's people, to see the, his kingdom grow in the world, see his work be done. That's what God really wants. And the author Luke highlights for us one man, again, Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement. The apostles called him this because he was an encouragement to them. That's, that's what Barnabas, Barnabas is named after the kind of guy that he's like, right? What you see is what you get. This guy is an encouragement. Let's call him son of encouragement. Isn't that great? Don't you want to be called the son of encouragement? I do. Um, Howard Hendricks said this. He said, we all need a Barnabas in our lives. Isn't that true? I'll, I'll add to that. We all need to be a Barnabas to others. Communities are built on the example of leading individuals like Barnabas. Guys that people can look up to, they can follow. You know, disciples, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're always looking for someone that, that sets the example, someone that you can go to, someone that you can learn from, that sort of thing. This is not the last time we're going to run into Barnabas. His name actually comes up 23 more times in the book of Acts, and we'll become pretty familiar with him, uh, pretty acquainted with him more and more all the time. He's a man who gives up everything to follow Jesus. Starts to travel the world with Paul, some very difficult circumstances. And, you know, in a self-centered world where we like to live for our own glory and we like to live for our own kingdom, where we have mottos like, well, the, ones, the one with the most toys wins in the end, right? Uh, Barnabas is an encouragement. He's, he's the real deal. 
he actually did sell everything and follow Christ and gave his life for Christ. And here's the thing. I think if we're going to make the switch from being you know, our self-absorbed hoarders to being uh, joyful, open-handed givers, I think we've got to understand it's not about us. That all that we have is a gift from God, and it really belongs to God. We learn to see ourselves not just as owners, but as stewards. I mean, you should do that with the breath that you're breathing right now. You're just a steward of it. You're, you're borrowing it. We, we borrow our breath from God. God's the, the author of life, the originator of life. Our life is a gift from Him, and it's to be used for His glory, right? It's really about Him. It's really about His gospel. We've also got to understand that so much of the reason why we're miserable and why we're frustrated is because when we only live for ourselves, we're going to be at war with other people who are trying to get us to live for them. Okay, so uh, we're trying to get them to orbit us, and they're trying to get us to orbit them, and so you're not dancing. It's just a battle for the center of position. Not a dance, a battle. And in a divided, self-absorbed world, a group of people like this early church with a single mission and vision and that's sharing each other's burdens. I mean, this, this community had to stand out in the world. Remember, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. People were saying, there's something different about them that they have, that I need, that I want, and I'm going to go join it. The gospel was being backed up by the way this, this, this community was living. And it was an attractive community. And uh, it's kind of funny. I was getting ready for the the new members class that we had this morning, which, by the way, if you missed that, uh, we can have another class, and uh, just let me know if you're, you're interested. But uh, in getting ready for that, I went down to Laura's office, and I asked her, I said, do you have any history on this place that I'm just not seeing? You know, because <laughs> I haven't heard a lot about the history of this church. And she throws her arms up in the air, and she's, I've been waiting so long for that, someone to ask me that question. And she busts out this old 1973 scrapbook and looking through the pictures, and I couldn't believe my eyes. And I said, why don't we have this out here for people to see? So maybe I'll put something together. Or, you know, if you're interested in the church's history and you want to compile it for us, let me know. If that's something that you really enjoy doing, like a, if you're a scrapbooker, and someone brought that to my attention this week. Uh, some people really enjoy doing that. Now, let me know if you'd like to. But anyway, this church, did you know this church started with just a small group of believers back in 1955 who were meeting home to home in various homes and in Shadron City Hall. And they just wanted to open the Bible and read it and study it and pray together. And uh, as they're meeting home to home, kind of like these believers are, there was two people who said, I think God wants me to give. And so there was two people who actually purchased these two lots that our church sits on. There was actually a parsonage right here. Did you know that? An old house right here. And that's where the first meetings took place, I guess, when they bought the house. Um, and over there was just kind of a lot, and that's where they built the first new building. So this is the second addition. But anyway, there was two people in this small group that said, I think the Lord wants me to give. And, and, 
and by a lot. And I thought that was just awesome. They were sensitive to how God wanted to use them and give to his mission. And the question that entered my mind was, am I really that sensitive still as to how God wants to use me to give? Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of routine giving. We give routinely, obviously. But it's easy to say, okay, uh, we've written the check, that's it for the month, and then we just kind of stop looking for opportunities to give or how the Lord would want us to give. Right? I'm, I'm done, I've, I've given my 10 or 20%, now what? You know, I'll just wait for the next month. But is there, think about this, ask yourself this question, is there something or someone the Lord wants me to give towards that I'm missing simply because I'm just not looking for it and I'm not praying about it? Is there someone around me that really needs to be blessed? Is there somehow I could help them just by giving? I mean, is, have, when's the last time you took stock of your possessions and said, I'm really just not using that. I haven't used it in years. I probably won't use it, and I know someone else who could use it. Just, just a question. But it brings up another interesting point. Uh, how do we know each other's needs if we aren't getting together and we aren't spending time together? If we don't get together, we don't spend time together, how are we going to know who needs what? How are we going to know where the needs are? I think authentic community requires just spending time together like this early church was. They were doing life together. Uh, it's really easy to uh, come and corporately worship God, to, to listen to the sermon, and at the same time never get truly connected to each other, to never experience body life. Getting to know one another keeps us authentic. It keeps us accountable. When you, when you really get into some small groups and Bible studies and you're doing life with other people in your church, it keeps you from putting the mask on on Sunday morning. You know what I mean? We come and we hide our weaknesses and we, you know, our, our smiles cover our, our frowns on Sunday morning because we're just not doing life together. Which if, if we were doing life together, we'd, you know, we'd be praying for one another. There'd, there'd just be authentic community. There's less pretending. I think a lot of young people have given up on church because they, they see the church just isn't a community where people really belong to one another. And we put our, put our walls up and our smiles on Sunday morning instead of really getting down to business, praying for one another, keeping each other accountable, that sort of thing. So I want to challenge you this week, number one, to just ask someone in our church who you don't know very well, just ask them to get together. Go on a walk around town if you guys like to exercise, uh, something like that. Get a cup of coffee or a meal together. Learn each other's testimony. Be prayer partners who pray for each other. Find an accountability partner. Um, and listen to a song. I got a song for you to listen to. It's called Stained Glass Masquerade by Casting Crowns. Stained Glass Masquerade, classic. Keeps us from putting on the mask on Sunday morning when we do authentic community. But uh, Luke, again, he's focused on a lot of positives here. Uh, but his idealism soon turns to realism. Barnabas is contrasted now with the episode of Ananias and Sapphira in verses 1 through 11. Uh, let's read that. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property 
and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back some of the price of the land, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he read these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. And the young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yeah, that was the price. And then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet, breathed her last, and the young men came and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church. That's the first use of the word church there, ecclesia. And over all who heard of these things. Okay, so it gets pretty serious pretty quick, doesn't it? Um, if that surprises us, I think we've really underestimated our sin, God's holiness, and the purpose of the church in the world. The church, obviously, is not perfect. If you find a perfect church out there, do not join it. You'll ruin it. Okay? Um, if you've read any of the New Testament letters, you know the church is not perfect. I mean, all of these letters are basically about correction, aren't they? At least a majority of what they're about is about correction. But part of the reason this happens is because every time God does something great, there's an enemy who wants to discredit it. You've got to remember there's an enemy, and you've got to remember that sometimes the enemy can be within us, we all have an enemy within called the sin nature that we're at war with. The spirit wages war against the flesh, the sin nature, and it's our sin nature that Satan wants to take advantage of. I mean, I think Satan lurks in God's church and seeks to undermine everything that God's new community represents. Saw some articles this week online about uh, leading church figures in Christ's name. They have all these charges filed against them. It's a horrible testimony on the church. But Satan loves that. He wants to discredit God's church. And uh, for their premeditated sin, I want you to notice that, this is not like, oops, we messed up type of sin. This was premeditated sin. They decided to sin in advance. Uh, God strikes them down personally on this spot here. And I want you to notice it was God who did it. Uh, Peter did not do it. Peter did not call on God to do this. The Spirit just revealed it to him, what was going to happen, because the Spirit knows everything. He knew the, the motives of their hearts. Uh, where did they go wrong? Was it keeping some of the proceeds 
Was it the amount? Was there giving regulations that required them to give a certain percentage? No, no, it wasn't anything like that. They were not even under any obligation to sell it, Peter said. You're not obligated to sell this once you sold it. You weren't obligated to even give anything from it. But the problem is that they deceitfully lied about it, and they did it out of a desire for self-glorification. Okay, They imitated Satan, the father of lies, and the father of pride. He's the father of sin. But Ananias and Sapphira, I think, saw how esteemed Barnabas was for his gift to the church and then desired similar recognition for themselves. They didn't really have a heart that genuinely cared about the needy like Barnabas. They just wanted to look good. And uh, it honestly reminds me of Judas. Remember Judas in John chapter 12, verse 6, it says, uh, do you remember this gal comes and she pours perfume on Jesus' feet? Where she anoints his body with this perfume for burial. And Judas says, why wasn't this perfume uh, sold and, and uh, the money given to the poor? And it says, well, Judas didn't, he said this not because he actually cared about the poor, but because he used to handle the money bag and he liked to take out of it. <laughs> Ananias and Sapphira, they don't really care about the poor. They're giving here out of a self glorification. I mean, it's, it's really a self-serving ulterior motive is what it is. It's amazing, isn't it, how deceitful our hearts can be? Uh, if God acted like this instantaneously all the time, I don't think any of us would be left in this room. <laughs> there wouldn't be enough caretakers, or undertakers, sorry. But they do a good deed and serve the Lord only to make it about themselves. You see that done today at all? Someone broadcasts their good deed on YouTube or Facebook. See, when we go to give or we go to serve the Lord in any capacity, a good question to ask ourselves is, what's my motive here this morning? Or what's my motive in doing this? Is this about me or is this about God? I mean, am I using God for me? I have no doubt there's a lot of ministers and pulpits today using the pulpit for their own glorification for their own spotlight. It's not really about God, it's about them. So what's my motive in doing this? What's my motive? Uh, is, it, is, it, is it about me? Is it about God? Am I using God for me? Am I using others? That's what we tend to do in this world. We use others for ourselves. I think God would rather have us give two pennies with a right heart than give two million dollars with some sort of self-serving ulterior motive. And I, I just don't know if there's a more revulsive sin than what you're seeing in this passage. Using others for yourself. We all know people like that. And we all know that's the way we operate sometimes. And we have to continually ask ourselves, what's really my motive here? Our day is filled with this kind of spirit, isn't it? It's a sin of the spirit, not just of the flesh. And James 3, 13 through 16 says, 
This kind of thing, what Ananias and Sapphira did, is demonic. It's demonic. It's insidious. It's a spirit of pride, greed, power, self-exaltation. It reminds me of a man named Diotrephes in 3 John. Remember what John said about Diotrephes? He loves to be first. And he kicked people out. He wouldn't allow visitors to come into the church. He wouldn't allow apostles into that church because he wanted first place. Diotrephes caused community in that church to disintegrate. And that's what self-centeredness does in community. It brings disintegration. It causes it to break down. And I'm thankful God doesn't judge us instantaneous like this because, like I said, there wouldn't be enough undertakers. And this is something uh, you've noticed if you've studied your Bible. Whenever there is a, a new time period, what we might call a new dispensation like this, like, okay, here's a new time period, the beginning of the church. We're in the church age. God's, God affirms that he's with this new movement God's doing something new. He's got to affirm it somehow, right? And you're going to notice throughout the Bible that whenever there's something new that he's doing, he's going to affirm it with miraculous signs. Uh, new, new, uh, uh, or positively and negatively, sorry. He affirms he's with it in a positive sense and in a negative sense. And people get the point through the miracles uh, that God's with the church or with whatever new movement he's causing. And uh, typically what happens is the miracles subside or they start to reduce in number as time goes on. People say, okay, God's with it. And then that sort of thing just kind of goes away. Kind of like in Israel in the Old Testament. There was a lot there with a lot of miracles that happened when Israel uh, left Egypt, right? During the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea and Mount Sinai and all these things. There was a lot of miracles that took place. God intervened in a lot of different ways. And one of the ways was when they actually got into the land, or can't remember which one it was. But anyway, Nadab and Abihu, you might recall them. Okay, a couple of the first priestly figures. Well, they go and they are instantaneously consumed by offering strange incense on God's altar. They didn't do things the way God said to do. And so people learned to take the priesthood seriously, to see that it wasn't just for anybody. And if you're going to do it, you have to do it God's way or don't do it at all. Well, in Acts, God's making the point perfectly clear in the early church that he's serious about the purity of the church. He's seeking restoration, and this is the kind of thing that is going to destroy their harmony. He's going to destroy, it's going to destroy their community. And so that's another requirement for authentic community is righteousness. Righteousness. I mean, if the Spirit's going to continue to, to move and to work through this group of people, they've got to be righteous. They've got to be obedient. They've got to stay humble. They've got to stay pure. Koinonia Fellowship. Between God and man, and man and man, it doesn't matter what relationship it is. It's broken by sin. Sin has to be dealt with, or it, it, or it destroys the people who do it. It destroys those around them. 
It's going to destroy the testimony of the church. I mean, how many marriages and families and workplaces and churches and nations have been divided and broken because of self-seeking sinful ways like this? And again, if, if it surprises us that God would do this to make a point, I think it tells us our view of sin and God's holiness is just a little too small. And I think it, it tells us we don't understand the importance of the church. We don't understand the importance of community and being the new community in the world, the way that shows the world how community is really meant to be done. We all struggle. We all fail at times. We all have to fight back these desires, you know, that Ananias and Sapphira struggled with to, to want to be the center of the show, to use other people for our own scripts, basically, to write our own stories. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to fail. We all do. But it's not okay to willfully just go on and live in sin in the church. It destroys the church. Jesus redeemed us. He gave us his spirit to redeem us from sin and to be a light in the world. But what difference are we going to make if we're just like the world? If we let that nasty, insidious, self-serving spirit of pride and greed and power and self-exaltation into the church. That's how you get denominations. Just kidding, guys. You can laugh. That's the spirit of Washington, D.C., isn't it? It's ugly. We can't let it into the church. we got to be different. When we go out into the world, we don't just represent ourselves. We represent Jesus, and we represent a restored humanity the way humanity was meant to be. And so as we come to the communion table this morning, let's, let's, number one, let's look back. And Brother Brewer over here gave me this sweet little uh, acronym for what we do in communion. We look back, we look within, we look forward. Past, present, future, right? So we're looking back, and this is all based on 1 Corinthians 11, but we look back, we remember that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus took our sin upon himself and he took the wrath of God that we deserve. He, we deserve. He took the judgment we deserve. That's what we're doing here. We're remembering Jesus paid it all. I can never be good enough. Secondly, we're looking within. We're examining ourselves. It's a way for us to push the reset button on our walk with God and say, God, uh, know my heart, know my ways, expose the ways that I've let some of these you know, motives and sins creep into my life that I need to confess and forsake and just get rid of it and uh, get back to walking with you. Let's take off the masks this morning. Let's be authentic before God. Because only when you really get authentic before God... Are you going to receive the grace that God has for you in order to achieve victory over that area that you're struggling with in your life? And then let's look ahead. Let's remember there's a day coming when he returns to set us free from sin 
altogether. And we look forward to that. Thank you.